Well, tonight we are going to be in Psalm 76. Psalm 76. You can find this on page 487 in the Pew Bible. We're going to read the entire psalm, uh, and it's only 12 verses. Reading from the English Standard Version, hear the word of the Lord. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. Glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains full of prey. The stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil, and they sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. But you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? From the heavens you utter judgment, and the earth feared and was still. When God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared, who cuts off the spirit of princes, who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So the wrath of God is... Not the happy subject that we like to bring up often in company. And, uh, you know, we don't uh, want to be known as one of those fire and brimstone churches, uh, as people like to say. Yet we also don't want to deny the wrath of God. The challenge here is that like the justice of God, we do a disservice to ourselves and others when we neglect the wrath of God. Now, there are churches and pastors who teach the wrath of God wrongly. Particularly, um, uh, the wrath of God is taught wrongly when it is leveled only against groups or people or behaviors that we don't like. And it is, the mo- it is most egregiously uh, uh, taught wrongly uh, when a pastor threatens the wrath of God upon people for something that is not actually a sin in itself, but simply a personal Peccadillo, the preacher. But far more often today, we simply do not talk about the wrath of God. And we certainly, even if we talk about it, we don't really have an ability to talk about the goodness of the wrath of God. We may talk about the necessity of it, but we rarely talk about the goodness of it. We treat the wrath of God often as a necessary evil. But clearly it is not. Here in this psalm, we have a song written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, praising God specifically for his wrath. Here is a song that is meant to be sung in the worship of the people of God. How can that be? Well, tonight we're going to consider first what God's wrath reveals and then our need for renewing a healthy Fear of God. First, let's consider in verses 1 through 6, the first half of the psalm, the, uh, the revelation of wrath. 
And there's two things we're going to focus on here. In that first in verses 1 through 3, God's wrath reveals his commitment to his people. God's wrath reveals his commitment to his people. God is transcendent, uh, infinite, and beyond all creation. Yet he has revealed himself in covenant with a people. In the old covenant, that people was Israel and Judah, and even more specifically, Salem, also called Zion. Now, Salem is likely a shortened version of the name uh, um, of the name Jerusalem. Just like somebody says, well, I'm going to go to Vegas, I mean Las Vegas, so uh, Salem can be a shortened version of Jerusalem. And, uh, and, and, but here is a place where God has made his home, as it were. Though God needs no house, though his presence indeed fills all the earth and beyond, his blessing yet rests upon his people as he dwells with them through the ministry of the tabernacle or the temple, whenever this was written. Uh, and, 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 and there he receives sacrifice and prayers and worship while he forgives the sin of his people and blesses them. And he brings his wrath to bear upon the enemy, the psalmist says, the enemy who have attacked his people. And he does so by breaking their flashing arrows, their shield, their sword, and all their weapons of war. That is, God destroyed the, their short and long-range offensive capabilities, as well as their ability to defend themselves from counterattack. Now, there's no specific historical context to this psalm, but we could go to several instances in the history of Israel, whether it's talking about the Philistines or the Assyrians later on, uh, and we could see where God defends his people and brings destruction upon the enemy. And while the context here is certainly the, the temple in Jerusalem, this method of God revealing himself, making himself known by defeating the enemy is not a new thing. It's not something he introduced in the promised land. It was something that he did even with Abraham, but especially in the Exodus. There in the Exodus, in the, in, even in early on in that book, Pharaoh, uh, after being ordered by Yahweh through Moses to let his people go, get asked the, the most, uh, he, didn't, he had no idea what he was saying, but he asked the most self-damning question he could have asked, which is, who is Yahweh? that I should listen to him. And Yahweh says, I'll show you. I'll show you who I am. God revealed himself to Pharaoh, to Egypt, and the nations. He revealed himself even to his own people that he is Yahweh, the God who cares for his people and who will bring their enemies down to the dust or to the bottom of the Red Sea. And we who are now part of God's people by faith in Jesus Christ, we who are the engrafted shoots into the vine, should take comfort that God is known and his name is great in the salvation that he has revealed in our midst through the judgment that he brought to bear on Christ for our sins. Yet still there is a day to come when he will bring his wrath to bear against all the enemies of church, of the church and Christ. His name will be great then as he removes all evil and wickedness 
from the world and even the remaining corruption from the bodies of his people. His wrath is what one day will cast the devil and death into Hades. For, and, and it is through his wrath that he will come to dwell with his people. And his name will indeed be great forever. So God's wrath reveals his commitment to his people. And secondly, looking at verses 4 through 6, God's wrath reveals his majestic sovereignty. Here, several commentators argue that the Lord here is being presented as a, as a kind of a lion hunting in the mountains that are full of prey. Earlier, the, what the ESV, the, the word that's translated as abode, could be translated as den, as an alliance den. It, it, I feel like it's a bit of a stretch uh, in the context, but it's not unusual. I mean, he's called the Lion of Judah, right? That's not unusual. But there's also an even broader theme that we find all over the Old Testament, and we find in the New Testament, of God being the warrior king of his people. So at the very least, we can tie it to that theme that we find often, especially in the Psalms. But he describes, he describes a, a mighty military force that is successful and brave, they're stout-hearted, who are stripped of their spoil as they sink into a deep sleep. Now, this is kind of like SEAL Team 6, is what he's describing here. All right? He's just talking about elite uh, veteran warriors that are not easily shaken, uh, and uh, in Roman times, it would put the vet- a lot of times they would put the veteran warriors kind of in a in the second wave, and then the then put the new guys in front, <laughs> give them some experience. Uh, but uh, a warrior was only stripped of his spoil when he was dead, and that's how you get all the stuff off of him, right? And so, it's so and we have stories in the Old Testament where they would go strip the spoil off of the slain soldiers. And it is a sign of total defeat to have the spoil taken from your body. But even when they're alive, the psalmist says they were unable to use their hands. Literally, the Hebrew says they couldn't find their hands. They were so afraid and helpless in the face of the wrath of God that they forgot their hands and couldn't find them to use them. That's how you know you're afraid. You start forgetting body parts and you can't find them. Right? You ever been so afraid you couldn't move? It was like my feet were planted. You know, it was like, my, it was like that kind of thing going on. And what was it that caused these mighty warriors to fall helpless before the Lord? The psalmist says, it was his word of rebuke. That not only the warrior, but the horse he rode in on were stunned. Now remember, a horse is kind of like a tank in the ancient world. It's a, it's, it's a weapon of war because you just run people over. It's a powerful one. And at a word from God, these veteran soldiers on their horses were brought to a standstill and destroyed. And this, the author says, reveals the glory and majesty of God. In the Bible, when you, when you study the majesty of God, it is more often revealed through a decisive demonstration of God's sovereign power in a military defeat of a human enemy. You will find, when you, if you look up word searches for the majesty of God, they, they don't talk about, oh, the beauty of creation. That's kind of, to, to, you know, that's kind of to what we do. We think about the majestic mountains and, you know, my country tis the thief and start singing. Right? So we got to start doing that thing. Well, that's not what they do. Right? In the biblical mind, majesty 
was, uh, was associated with military ability and the defeat of the enemy. And you'll usually read about God's majesty in the context of a military victory over a great enemy. And so, the, you know, there's, uh, um, and, and the enemy that is described here is this, I mean, and his power is absolute. There's, a, there's an action movie that I uh, have enjoyed uh, from many years ago, but uh, the hero at the end of the film, he, he easily dispenses with the two main bad guys after dispensing, with relative ease, after dispensing with many other bad guys before that. It's an action movie. And so, and so um, but the director of the movie, he said, he said, well, I don't really like that thing that you do, they do in action movies where the hero's fighting that it looks like he's about to lose and then he, and then he comes back at the last and he survives by the skin of his teeth. He's like, as the director, I like my hero just to dominate. <laughs> just, I like my hero just to go in and just to take everybody out. You know, like that's what I like. And, and that is the picture here. There is no question whether the Lord is going to almost make it and then he comes. It's just no, just absolute domination from start to finish. That is the majesty of God. That is the sovereign power that results in praise. And yes, we may well wonder, you know, why does the Lord endure such evil and rebellion in the world? We may cry out along with the psalmist. Uh, in multiple psalms, how long, O Lord, will you let this continue? But let us never wonder if, God, if our God is able. Let us never wonder if our God is capable of defeating his and our enemies, even Satan himself. As we sang this evening, as Martin Luther wrote in that hymn, one little word shall fell. And so the wrath of God is a good thing for his people. It's a good thing for the world. It is his wrath that will bring down the enemies of his church. And, and his wrath plays a role even in the cleansing of our sin in the cross of Christ. And so we need, but we need to dwell in this space of the goodness of the wrath of God and take in the sovereign power of God's wrath and what it reveals about him and how he brings it to bear for the good of his people. And this meditation ought to lead us to the, what the second half of the psalm is all about, which is renewing our fear of God in verses 7 through 12. So the power, and, and here, there's several aspects here. The first one is that we need to renew our fear of God, and we're encouraged to do so, because the power of God's wrath is undeniable. The power of God's wrath is undeniable. We see this in verses 7 and 8. He is to be feared, the psalmist says. He is to be reverenced. And certainly we could say for many reasons, but the one highlighted by the psalmist's rhetorical question is, who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? He may be slow to anger, but once his anger is roused, who can stay his hand? Who can stop him? Right? It is a, it, it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You know, it's... I kept thinking about it when I was reading this. I kept thinking about a picture of it. You know, you get those, you get that little dog. You get the big dog, and the little dog. He's, he's, you know, he's barking up a storm. He's showing, kind of puffing up a chest, and while the sleeping dog's just kind of sitting there and just kind of nipping at him and nipping at him. But once the big dog rises up, or the big dog goes, ah, you know, like little moment. What does that dog, little dog do? He's gone, right? He's like, I'm out of here. I'm going to back up to a safe distance and then continue my yipping. Because he knows that once the anger of that dog is roused, he's in trouble. 
That's how it is with man and God. We may yip and bark and make all our noise, but once his anger is roused, there is no escape. Now we've been dealing with largely a a small localized context of the land of Israel and Jerusalem so far, but here the psalmist widens the scope of God's judgment falling upon all the earth. He does it to highlight the inescapable reality of God's judgment. All will fall under the judgment of God. Further, this is not difficult for him. He utters his judgment from afar in heaven. And the whole earth fears and is brought to a standstill. Right? I can barely make my kids stand still. But God can speak from heaven and bring the earth to a screeching halt. Now, interestingly, in Revelation 6, verses 12 through 17, finds a powerful depiction of God's wrath raining down upon the wicked. Uh, These are people who do not uh, repent of their evils, who hate God, who shake their fist at God with rage, uh, yet they cannot do anything to stop the Lord in judgment. And so they don't want grace. They don't want mercy. They 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 just don't want to be judged. They want to be God. They want to be in charge. And so everyone in in Revelation 6, from kings and the great, the rich and powerful, generals, even the slave and the free, all who reject God hide themselves away, calling to the mountains and the rocks themselves, saying, quote, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can The wrath of God is inescapable. It should lead the one who hears of it, who comprehends it, who rightly trembles before God to seek his mercy. And we have that revelation of mercy in his son, Jesus Christ. But know carefully that while we are saved from personally bearing the righteous judgment of God in our souls for eternity in hell because of our sins, That our sins have been punished for Christ has received the wrath that the Father poured out upon him in our place. It's not that Jesus said, uh, because of Jesus there is no wrath. It's because of Jesus he took the wrath for us. And I've said this before in many sermons and I'm just going to keep on saying it. There is no sin that has not or will not be punished fully by the wrath of God. Every sin ever committed in the history of humanity, even the ones yet to be committed, will be punished to the fullest extent of the wrath of God. The question is, is will we bear that punishment, or will Christ bear the punishment for us? Will I bear the wrath I deserve, or will I trust that Jesus has borne my wrath on the cross. Make no mistake, the wrath of God is inescapable and it is incumbent upon each of us to seek reconciliation with God while it may be found in Jesus Christ. Yet note in verse 9 the purpose of God's wrath. Now God's purpose, when you ever talk about God's purpose, there's always going to be somebody in the room that's going to go, glory. 
right? Because that's God's purpose in everything, ultimately speaking. So there's one of those great churchy right answers that you can say. It's Jesus or his glory. Like, it's, you know, that's one of those top, uh, top few answers you can give, and you'll usually be right. Uh, but that is the implied purpose there, certainly. And there are times where that is his stated purpose when it comes to his wrath. But here the psalmist says, the explicit purpose of the wrath of God is to save the humble of the earth. Now the humble are not the nice moral people. The humble are those who have stopped shaking their fist at God and held out their empty hands to receive His mercy. The humble are those who have bowed the knee to Christ as Lord. The humble are those who have entrusted their souls and even their lives, that even if, they, even if their lives are marked by persecution and suffering, entrusted themselves to the sovereign care of God to protect them and in due time to lift them up, as Peter says in 1 Peter 5. Like his destruction of Pharaoh and his, and his army, the wrath of God is for the deliverance of his people. The Exodus is actually a picture of what Jesus does in the New Testament. Jesus is, as Hebrews says, the better Moses who accomplishes a better exodus than Moses did. We must then remember that the purpose of God's wrath is not because God delights in death and destruction of the wicked. He specifically says in his word that he does not delight in the destruction of the wicked. He says, I don't enjoy it. I don't like it. But it is necessary to satisfy divine justice. But his wrath is also necessary to deliver his people. This is true, as I as said already, of the cross. Because if not for the wrath of God, for our sin poured out upon Jesus, we would not have salvation. If not for the wrath of God poured out upon Jesus, you and I would still be sitting here, stained with sin and headed for eternal destruction. But through the wrath of God poured out upon His blessed Son in the Gospel, we are saved and delivered. And the wrath of God becomes not a terror, but a good thing. A thing that we long for and look forward to. Because it will remove the corruption and evil in the world. And bring about the final state of things. The kingdom of God and glory. This brings us finally to the results of wrath in verses 10 and 11 and 12. Now, I actually had a harder time understanding exactly what it meant to use the wrath of man like a belt in verse 10. It's very poetic, but you read sometimes you read a poetic line, you're like, that sounds nice. I have no idea what that actually means. And uh, I read a variety of different opinions on it, but I think Charles Spurgeon got it right. That the psalmist is saying here that the wrath of man is overcome and made subservient to his own glory. By the wrath of God, his sovereignty, his sovereign power takes the wrath of man and just wraps it around him like a belt. It's like I wear the wrath of man like a belt on my clothing. That's how sovereign the Lord is. For all the rage and the pow- and power that men can wield, for all our tanks and our missiles, and we got some cool stuff in the military. I mean, I do just war theory stuff, and we and I love learning about the new weapons and things that we come up with and it's incredible what we can do the, uh, and, and, and it gets, just keeps getting more technical and more advanced and more precise and it's pretty, pretty incredible but for all even of our own power 
God just says, eh. It's like, my, it's like my belt that I put on. It's just, it's nothing, right? It's like when uh, the, the, they were constructing the Tower of Babel, you know, and God goes, what are they doing down there? The big tower that was supposed to be like a siege works up into the heavens, and down there, all the men are going, yeah, yeah, look at that. Yeah, we're going to make it up there. And God's going, what are they doing down there? It's hard to see. They're so down there. You know, it's like, I'm going to go check out this little sandcastle they call a tower. And so one result here is the ultimate revelation of God's absolute sovereignty and dominion. And even the unfolding of the wrath of man into his sovereign plan. Another result is the present reverence and obedience of his people. As the psalmist says, we are to make vows to Yahweh and to perform them. To bring gifts to the Lord. To offer our sacrifice of praise. The fear of God for his people is not a terrified cowering in the corner of the room because lightning may strike you know, from, the, from the sky at any moment. Rather, it is an increase of our worship as we are reminded that this God is different from us and beyond us. And he is holy beyond our understanding. The fear of God, the, the meditation on his wrath restrains us from sinning as well. Because we do well when we are tempted by sin to restrain ourselves, if not because we love God, but because we know our God pours out wrath upon sin. Not that we, can, not that we are worried about losing our salvation, but rather how can we knowingly engage in that which God hates, in that which God punishes. Would we delight ourselves in that which required the spilled blood of the Son of God to cleanse us? Jonathan Edwards wrote, this is one of my favorite quotes of all time, it's helped me a lot in my Christian life. He said, and I'm paraphrasing, he said, look, if the love of God cannot restrain you from sinning, then let the fear of God hold you until your love for God returns. If the love of God cannot Keep us from sinning. Let the fear of God hold us there until our love for God returns. Finally, the fear of God, in the last verse here, verse 12, the fear of God brings us a proper view of God and the world. That our God is the one to be feared, not men. And any human being of any power, princes and kings of the earth would do well to fear the Lord and to obey Him. And if that is true for those of earthly power, then how much more for those of us who have far less earthly power? The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that the wrath of God is already being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. He says there that God gave them up to their lusts of their heart. This is the that revelation of wrath that is presently in the world. That God gave them up to their lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonor of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Even now his wrath is being brought to bear. Sorry, I'm end that quote. But even, uh, but what it's saying is that, look, God's wrath is already being revealed, and God is doing it by giving people over to their sins. 
That is, a, that is God's wrath even at work, is giving people what they want. But even now, his wrath, we see here, according to Paul, is being brought to bear at the same time while God is saving us. And one day, the fullness of his wrath will be brought forth. And the fullness of the, his glory will be seen. And in that day, uh, when our, where God brings his wrath to bear in its fullness, the Israel of faith, the people of God, the church, will know God even more. His name will be great because his dwelling place will be revealed as the new Jerusalem in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for your wrath. We thank you for the reality of your wrath that, that, can, that, that convicts us of our sin. That drives us to flee to the cross. Where we embrace our Savior. Who has borne your wrath for our sin. Whose blood was spilled. Who was buried for us. He who knew no sin. Became sin for us. Became a curse. Hung upon a tree. That we would live. That we would be pardoned and forgiven. That we would be treated as if we had no sin. Because of the righteousness of the Son of God. And so Lord we thank you. For your wrath. And even the role it plays in the gospel itself. We thank you for your Son who bore our wrath. And gives us his righteousness. And cleansing and pardon, and forgiveness. And Lord, we pray that the day would come when You would remove evil from the earth. We pray, Lord, that many would hear and turn and repent. We pray that Your people, Your church, would recover a healthy and holy fear of the One who made them, of the judge of all the earth, yet not in, a, in, not in an irrational terror but in a reverence and awe, even as we worship you, as we sing praises unto you. For you are the God who has reconciled us to himself. We who were once rebels and sinners, deserving condemnation, but now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so, Father, we pray that while your wrath may at times be a terrible thing, and rightly so for us to consider, that it would also be a comfort, that it would be desirous as a part of the end of all things that is to come, and that we would take comfort in the purpose of your wrath, which is to deliver your people. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.